In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Democrats try to make inroads in deep red areas. But I watched the numbers go up down here in Southwest Georgia. Yeah. You guys are the sticky ones. <laughs> y'all put in there and y'all boosted those numbers up and we've got to do it again. Yeah. You guys are the sneaky ones. Welcome to Politically <laughs> Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, the podcast we want you to depend on for the most on-the-ground coverage of the 2022 election. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy, and we are two of the political insiders here at the AJC. If you're just listening to us for the first time, please follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You never miss an episode of Political Georgia. Patricia, it's another busy week in the dog days of summer. We're before the Labor Day false start, you know, because the election never ended. But, but the final sprint, I guess, begins uh, at Labor Day, but it feels like for us, it never really ended. I can't, I can't even respond to that. It's just it's just been like one long day <laughs> since 2020 <laughs> in the best way possible. But yeah, it's been a it's been a lot and then some. But as political reporters, especially working in a state that used to be relatively sleepy and predictable when it came to November elections, you cannot possibly ask for more than what the Georgia media market is getting uh, with its politics right now. So it is it is a great time to be alive, is all I can say about this race. And it's about to get even more hectic with a lot of weekend events, a lot of night events. We're already burning our candles at both ends. But this weekend, we have the Democratic State Democratic Convention in Columbus. Uh, I know neither of us will actually be there because we already have plans made that were long made plans, but we'll have some of our colleagues there in Columbus to bring you guys the news. But I'm going out of town with some friends this week and we're going up to Nashville. So we're very excited. I need to know who does your laundry because I'll be doing laundry and going to kids' sporting events and practices, which I, which I actually love. And then I can always catch up with like my sister, my parents. I love doing all of those things, but I don't understand the level of fun that you have, Greg Bluestein, outside of your <laughs> outside of your work. And I just need to know who's doing your laundry. In this case, I just buy new shirts every time. No. Um, <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. I thank my wife for that, although neither of us are very um both of us are very busy, so we get our housework done at, at odd hours. I'll put it that way. Perfect. <laughs> well, coming up later, we'll talk about how Democrats are cheering President Joe Biden's student loan forgiveness plan, but why Senator Raphael Warnock wants more. But first, I went down with Stacey Abrams to Camilla, Georgia, about three and a half hours south of Atlanta, for a campaign stop, the latest in a string of stops all around the state. Not just in metro Atlanta or deep blue areas like the urban centers of Columbus, Macon, or Augusta. She is heading to red counties like Mitchell County. 
Here's what she said about her campaign strategy. I know that in the, in the deepest reddest states, in the deepest reddest counties, there are bright blue spots, there are light blue spots, there are purple spots that can be tinted a little bit. And that is why we are going across the state of Georgia. Patricia, Stacey Abrams says, you don't win state of Georgia by winning counties, you win it by winning over people. And that is why she's going to counties where, you know, like she did last cycle when she visited all 159 counties, she's going to counties that Trump might have won with 60%, 70% of the vote. But she's hoping to cut those margins just enough to give her a chance in November. Yeah. And again, all you have to do as a Democrat, all you have to do, I mean, what you have to do as a Democrat is to narrow those margins. We know that Republicans have a massive advantage in the rural parts of this state in the same way that Democrats have a massive advantage in the urban parts of the state. But if Democrats can just peel off some of those voters in the rural parts, if they can just narrow the margin of victory that Republicans have, they know that's what they have to do to give themselves a shot at winning in 2022. And all you have to do is look at what happened in 2020 versus 2016 for Donald Trump. And again, also in 2021, we saw a huge drop off, especially in the Senate contest between November and January in the reddest parts of the state, in the 9th District and the 14th District. Republicans had gigantic margins in November, and they just those margins were shaved down enough by January by Democrats and also just by Republicans staying home that that really was the formula that Democrats needed to win statewide. And it has been a long time since Republicans, since Democrats rather, have won statewide consistently. And so they absolutely know that's part of the winning formula to continue to shave those margins down and then win these races in 22. Yeah, this was a big part of Kemp's campaign strategy back in 2018. And frankly, in 2020 too as well, he'd go to these deep red counties too, where he was assured of winning, right? He was assured of of winning a, an overwhelming majority of the voters there. But he would try to drive up the margins to win a one of these counties, you know, by even a bigger more margin that Trump won, right? He would try to outdo Trump in these counties. And he did. I mean, counties that Trump won by 80%, he won by as much as 90% of the vote back in 2018. And you're seeing it all over again. You know, he's going to spots like Northwest Georgia, Tacoa, he went to not long ago. But just like in 2018, so is Stacey Abrams. And, you know, she's not getting gigantic crowds at every one of the stops. I mean, yesterday in Mitchell County and Camilla, there was maybe 50 to 80 people there. Some of those people, though, showed up an hour early. They brought lawn chairs with them. You know, they brought their family members with them. They were very excited because as they, you know, this is not surprising, they don't see candidates come to them that often. You know, they see their local elected officials, of course, but they don't see big name candidates like Stacey Abrams or Brian Kemp come to their backyards very often. Yeah, and it's also a backdrop for Stacey Abrams to have a broader message for the rest of rural Georgia, that she's in rural places, that she's going there with a message that she believes is going to connect outside of Atlanta, and that these are voters that she wants and that she's making a play for. And so she can tee them up in that way, hopefully, that then the Democratic ground game can come in and start to really deliver those voters in November. So she's not just talking to the 50 people who managed to get over to Camilla (laughs) uh, on that day. It's really to all 
all of those people in all of Southwest Georgia and other rural voters will notice as well with the kind of coverage that you are able to do from those sort of far-flung places. Other people reading your coverage notice that and they notice that she's not just in downtown Atlanta or in the bluest parts of urban areas, that she's trying to bring that message in a more broad way. And it really goes to be a part of her message that we are one Georgia, that she has a vision that she wants to include everybody in the state, not just, you know, Democrats or Republicans. And look, when you go to a stop like that, too, all the local media show up. So there is a local TV station. There is local radio stations. There's a few, you know, local reporters there. So you're getting that message out to the local audience as well. And she's also able to sharpen her attacks on Brian Kemp in a way that resonates, she hopes resonates with the rural audience. His response to every crisis is to take credit but take no responsibility. His answer is to give more and more money to the wealthy and less and less to those who need it. Unless it's an election year, he suddenly discovers that there are poor people in Georgia. And that's her appeal to voters in these deep red areas. And she's also made this message in Atlanta that Governor Kemp doesn't care. You know, that that's sort of maybe if there's a heart of her message, we've talked about all her policies, but one of the common prevailing themes she's trying to get across is her argument that Governor Kemp does not care about Georgia voters. Of course, he would he would directly and strongly disagree with that. But her case is that he's willing to give tax refunds, um, you know, dole out federal dollars that his party and he personally opposed on an election year just aimed at getting him another term in office. And she really wants to drive home that Brian Kemp may care about some people, but it's wealthy Georgians. It's sort of his own donors. He, she wants to make the case that he is looking out for some people, but she's not looking out for the people in that audience. You know, that can be a tough message against an incumbent if people feel like their own experience has been different from that. But if they feel like their experience has been the same with that, that really will resonate. But it's that's a little bit harder of an argument to make against somebody who Georgia voters already know extremely well, who already has a pretty good approval rating in the state. But she's it, again, it's just your attempt to just knock that down a little bit. You don't have to flip everybody who thinks they like Brian Kemp. You just need to let them know, you know what, it might look okay on the surface, but guess who's getting all the good stuff behind the scenes? And it's not like Governor Kemp has been ignoring or neglecting rural areas. In fact, in 2018, he spent a lot more time on the campaign trail in rural Georgia than he did in metro Atlanta, mostly devoting millions of dollars in ads in the metro Atlanta airspace, but very rarely uh, having campaign stops in Atlanta. It's different now that he's the governor. (laughs) He has plenty of uh, events in Atlanta, fundraisers and press conferences and and the like. But whenever he goes out on the campaign trail, Odds are he's hitting rural Georgia. And, you know, he's hitting Stacey Abrams over the economy, the economy, the economy, public safety. Our colleagues, though, they had an interesting story that might be a new line of attack for Republicans. We'll see. But they had an interesting story that delves deep into how Stacey Abrams made her personal wealth. You know, in 2018, this was a, uh, both of their personal finances were big stories. Governor Kemp, because of his failed investments, including in a Kentucky soybean processor, and Stacey Abrams for incurring debt and struggling to repay her back taxes to the IRS. Well, flash forward, Stacey Abrams is now a multimillionaire. So is Brian Kemp. Brian Kemp's wealth has grown since he took office. Stacey Abrams' wealth has grown since she lost that 2018 race. But Patricia, Republicans are attacking after the story 
because there are still some unanswered questions that the Abrams campaign declined to comment on or to elaborate on involving issues of transparency that we expect Republicans to continue to pummel. For sure. I don't think it's going to be easy for Republicans to just attack Abrams for being wealthier than she was four years ago, um, especially because we all watched as her own profile and her own, frankly, her level of fame and her level of success just grew immensely over those last three years. We all saw her publishing her books. We saw her doing this huge speaking tour. And I mean, she was in like gigantic theaters selling out tickets. I mean, we it was just yeah. extremely all obvious. How she, yeah, exactly. Um, just it was very clear that her profile was growing, that it would be an opportunity for her to make a lot of money. She made no bones about the fact that she needed to make money. She wanted to help her parents out as well, which she has done. But I do think the questions of transparency are important. I think it's important for people to know um, for anything that is not sort of has not been in front of our eyes. It is important, I think, for voters to feel like they have a full understanding of whether any candidates have any kind of outside influences that they should know about. Do they have any side of conflicts that they should know about. Something like Brian Kemp's, he has not been secretive about it, but I think Democratic voters will be puzzled about how he was able to gain wealth while he was a sitting governor. That is kind of a different situation. Stacey Abrams was a private citizen making all that money, and uh, Governor Kemp was serving in the governor's mansion. So I think the Democrats, for anything that they get on that attack, they are going to give it right back to Governor Kemp. And Patricia, we also have to talk about some sad news former First Lady Sandra Deal, the wife of Governor Nathan Deal, passed this week. And Patricia, I got to know her very well in her official duties on the campaign trail. She never had, even though we were writing all sorts of stories that she didn't like and that her husband certainly didn't like, she never had a single unkind word. In fact, she'd often make a beeline over to me and just catch up. She loved it when I brought my kids on the campaign trail, even if I didn't sometimes. (laughs) She'd always have a toy for them or talk to them. And look, I mean... In her official duty, she always seemed happiest, not when she was at the governor's mansion or at a press conference, but when she would be going to these schools all over the state, and she went to all 159 counties, speaking in cramped libraries, in classrooms, sitting on the floor with with the children, reading to them. That was her passion. She was a former school teacher, and she wanted to bring her joy for the written word, bring her joy of reading and literature to all these students. Yeah. And, you know, I never did cover Mrs. Deal because I was not working for the paper at the time. But I would see her and Governor Deal at the Waffle House on Sundays. At the There's a Waffle House on Roswell Road that is the closest one to the governor's mansion. And I would go there with my kids and walk in with my husband and just see the two of them like sitting at a booth. And we'd, we'd be like, hey, you know, what? they didn't know us at all. We're like, hey, Governor Deal. Hey, Mrs. Deal. They were so kind. And you could tell they were enjoying each other so much. And you posted a video that really detailed what was just frankly a love story between Nathan Deal and Sandra Deal and how incredibly close they were. And uh, I've been interviewing a number of staffers for Mrs. Deal and Governor Deal over the last couple of days because I'm doing my Sunday column on Mrs. Deal and just the sort of the personal impact that she has had on the staffers who worked with her. And uh, something that was shared with me also, they also really felt like Mrs. Deal was in many ways the source of the governor's strength and greatness. And she was really, as much as she was known for her classroom visits, she was also a very strategic thinker. She did a lot of work also with early childhood health, maternal health, expanding past 
and adding on to literacy initiatives to really work on sort of the strengthening the the structure and the support in the state for kind of the whole child. And so I would say my biggest takeaway from these interviews is she's had an unbelievably strong personal impact on her staffers who have gone on to work for the governor and work for the mm-hmm. speaker and lots of other high level positions since they worked in her office as young staffers. And they've all said what they take away from her is how they want to treat people professionally, even in a political setting, especially in a political setting, but to be kind to them, to give them a chance and a second chance, and to uh, just be respectful of people no matter their station in life. So it was I've been really struck by the impact she's had on the people who she's left behind. Kindness and respect. And Governor Deal would be the first to tell you that he was the introvert in the relationship. It was Sandra Deal who was the extrovert. I mean, he would be just as happy to go to a big event and kind of sit by, you know, kind of in the corner by himself. Whereas Sandra would have to come over and say, Nathan, get out there. These people are here to see you. <laughs> They're not here just to, just to mingle. They, they want to hear from you. And so sometimes it was Sandra Deal who was the extrovert. And let's listen to a clip of that interview you just mentioned. The summer of my sophomore year, uh, I got a call from one of my high school classmates. Well, she calls me up and she says, I've got a blind date for you. The day I met Nathan was at choir practice. So we were in the choir and in walked Nathan. And she said, that's him. Sandra can still tell you what color shirt I was wearing. (laughs) Oh gosh, I can't do this. Theirs was truly a love story. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, along with your other host, Patricia Murphy. And we are two of the political insiders at the AJC, along with our colleague, Washington correspondent, Tia Mitchell. And we are also the authors of the AJC's Daily Morning Jolt, which we think sets the stakes and the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every morning. If you're a subscriber to the AJC, you can join the community now, right now, by going to subscribe at AJC.com slash podcasts. And your first month of unlimited digital access is just 99 cents. That's subscribe at AJC.com slash podcasts. So you always know What's really going on? And Patricia, we led the jolt on Thursday with this sort of Democratic victory lap over student debt relief. Here's what President Biden had to say about that plan. We will forgive $10,000 in outstanding federal student loans 
In addition, students who come from low-income families, which allowed them to qualify to receive a Pell Grant, will have their debt reduced $20,000. President Biden wants to target it for the neediest of students. Both of these targeted actions are for families who need it the most. Working and middle-class people hit especially hard during the pandemic, making under $125,000 a year. Patricia, we know this was a top priority of Stacey Abrams, who's hosted events calling for student debt relief, and even more so for Senator Raphael Warnock, who has made no bones about it. He has said over and over again on the campaign trail that he is personally lobbying President Biden and White House officials to take meaningful action. Was this meaningful enough for him? You know, his statement sort of suggested that while this was a very good initial step, it is that. It is a first step. So he is already pushing for more uh, student debt relief. And in part, Patricia, he always likes to say he went to college at Morehouse on a full faith scholarship. That meant he went there without any sort of financial aid already in the books. He went there not knowing how he'd even pay his first semester of tuition. And so he says, you know, he talks about how important it was for him to become his family's only college graduates. At the same time, he wants to open those doors to another generation of students. Yeah. And this ended up being a really polarizing announcement from the White House because Republicans immediately pounced on this as what they said is wasteful spending, as something that is going to only punish people who either already paid off their student loans or never went to college in the first place. Or somebody like Rich McCormick, who's the GOP nominee up in the 6th District, said, hey, if you want to go to college, go to the military like I did. And he he did go to the military. So Republicans absolutely pounced on this. And then for Democrats, They wanted this relief, but many Democrats, including Raphael Warnock, wanted more. And so a group from the New Georgia Project was up in D.C. the day that this announcement was made, and they were lobbying offices to say, we want more than just $10,000. We want full debt relief targeted to a certain group or certain groups, either it's low-income voters or just find some way for this to really mean the most to the people who need it the most. If it's so broad-based, there is an argument that uh, you're not really helping the people who need it and you're helping the people who don't. However, this is a victory for Raphael Warnock. It is another piece for the White House to be able to take to Democratic voters in the November midterms and say, promises made, promises kept. We said that we would do debt relief. And Joe Biden did promise that on the campaign trail. And now he's been able to deliver on that. Like everything with Democrats, it's not going to make them all happy, but it does satisfy the broadest base probably possible with a program like this. You're right. It's also a gamble, right? You, you mentioned Republican pushback. There's also Democratic pushback, yeah. not just because it didn't go far enough, like Senator Warnock, but there are many Democrats who felt like this is inappropriate. What does this mean for those who work multiple jobs to get through college or dip deep into their savings accounts or you know, didn't go to the very fancy private school that cost $60,000 a year and instead went to the state school, even if they could have gone to the other school, right? So there are serious questions about what this says, you know, to our society. Also, part of the Republican pushback, we heard, basically, we heard Senate hopeful Herschel Walker ask some of those same questions. What does this mean for those who, who dipped into their savings account to pay for college? They feel like Republicans writ large feel like this is going to end up costing you know, folks who did pay off their college debts 
by raising taxes or other concerns down there. We have no indication whatsoever this will lead to a hike in taxes. But we have this statement from Governor Brian Kemp, who says, in yet another slap in the face to hardworking Americans, the Biden administration is taking reckless action to appease their base, saddle taxpayers with more government spending, and pick winners and losers in the midst of an economic crisis. So expect to hear this plenty more. This is Governor Kemp tying this student debt relief back to his argument for a second term. Yes, absolutely. But, you know, as much as there has been Republican pushback and even some Democratic pushback, I don't know how the Democrats could have gotten through to the midterms without doing something on student debt. And they've been sort of pushing back the repayment deadline. There's been a pause on this during COVID. So education groups, African-American groups, Latino groups have been just hammering the White House to do something, do anything on student debt relief. So I don't know how Biden could have not delivered on this um, because the message that was coming to the White House, frankly, was, look, Black voters got you elected. And don't go kidding yourself that that's not exactly why you're in the White House. And so you need to deliver for Black voters. And there is tons of data that shows that minority groups are disproportionately affected by high debt. And that really hamstrings them just planning for life, trying to buy a house, trying to send their own kids to college. You know, this debt follows people for decades. In some cases, these are for people who never even had a chance to finish college. So it's certainly, you know, there's a lot of concern among public policy experts that it creates uh, sort of this moral hazard for people. uh, Well, don't worry about the debt you've got. Maybe someday the federal government will eliminate it or take it down a notch. And uh, that argument is certainly out there. I think also Democrats uh, and Republicans alike would be wise to get their arms around just the absolutely spiraling cost of college. That's why people are forced to take out these huge loans is because colleges uh, just continue to increase their tuition at a pace that far exceeds inflation. If you go into many college campuses these days, it is like, I mean, their parking decks are like the Taj Mahal. It's the most beautiful (laughs) parking deck you've ever seen. It's, you know, wrought iron and new bricks and it's gorgeous. And it looks like something out of old England. Um, It's ridiculous, actually, if I can get if I can just share one of my pet peeves. So, uh, you know, this money will eventually, um, it's it's already in the hands of colleges that are, in some cases, living their best lives. And uh, students are on the hook for it. So these students are in a real bind. But there's an underlying public policy problem here that really does need to be addressed. I like the old English wrought iron (laughs) parking (laughs) decks. I'm like, this is one gorgeous parking deck. <laughs> it's immaculate. Well, now it's time for our favorite segment. And Shaney, Shaney B, we need we need, probably need like a musical cue in for this eventually. Maybe maybe you can get your xylophone out <laughs> and do your good <laughs> an esteemed xylophone player. But it's our listener mailbag that Shaney B monitors 24-7. People don't believe us, you know, and then they call in and they say, Wow, it, you were right. You can now call the Politically Georgia podcast hotline anytime, 24-7. Leave a question. We'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. The number is 770-810-5297. That's 770-810-5297. Shaney B. and his team of dedicated, devoted I, I, it's not even interns. They're kind of like cultists at this point, just following you around everywhere. <laughs> you do, you do. <laughs> They're politically Georgia groupies. They're groupies. Um, and I think we've got a couple good questions this week. We do. Uh, let's start off with a, by the way, if somebody leaves us a question or a comment, but doesn't leave us a name, can I name them? Yes. I think you should. You okay. You should. 
New rule. If you don't leave your name, I'll assign you one. <laughs> First caller is Aloysius. And he has a question about co-campaigning or the lack thereof. I have been very surprised to see the almost non-existent co-campaigning between, honestly, between the Democrats and the Republicans. I know that a few times Abrams and Warnock have tried to make an effort to kind of, you know, team up and uh, really don't believe I've seen that anywhere uh, for Kemp and Walker since the first time that Brian Kemp ran before Herschel Walker was even a candidate. So my question is kind of twofold. One, do you think we'll start to see that more as we approach November? And secondly, do you think that there is a combination of people that are trying to avoid each other? Do you think uh, Kemp wants to avoid Walker? Thank you. Aloysius, what a great question. Very astute, Aloysius. (laughs) (laughs) Um. I, yes, uh, we, we, and we've written about this in The Jolt before. There has been no tag team yet. We have not seen Herschel Walker and Governor Kemp on the campaign trail in public together. We've seen Senator Warnock and Stacey Abrams out there together at Democratic events. Like this weekend, they'll be together at the Democratic Convention in Columbus, but they have not been on the campaign trail together, even though they're very close personal friends. And I think it's exactly for the reasons that you sort of outlined. Governor Kemp is ahead right now by three, four, five points in all these public polls. Herschel Walker is behind. There hasn't been a, Governor Kemp's campaign has wanted to run its own campaign. I'll put it that way. And Herschel Walker has, it wasn't like Herschel Walker was a huge supporter of Governor Kemp. He he said he was mad before the primary that Kemp and Purdue were facing each other and wouldn't say who he voted for in the May primary. So they're not exactly close with each other, not saying that they're enemies. And I'm sure we'll see them on the campaign trail at some point, but they are run, running their own distinct campaigns. The Stacey Warnock thing is just as interesting because they are very close. Stacey Abrams is is one of the main reasons that Warnock got into the special election Senate seat back in 2020 and one of the reasons that the party cleared the field for him because she advocated for him to national Democrats and to state Democrats saying, this is our guy. Let's funnel all our resources to Raphael Warnock. And yet, you know, they're taking very different stances on the campaign trail over some key issues. And I think the biggest one might be Joe Biden, where Stacey Abrams has embraced him, you know, said, has said that she'll campaign with him, has said that, you know, she's proud of his record. Whereas Senator Warnock, he's eager to show his independence from Joe Biden. He's eager to show an independent streak saying, hey, I'll, I'll work with Joe Biden, but I'm also just as eager uh, and just as able to work with Republicans, in his view, whoever is the best for Georgia. Yes. And I would only add Aloysius to that very insightful answer to your insightful question. You know, it's just like any kind of newish relationship. You only want the upsides and none of the downsides. Like there are risks associated for all of the candidates who are leading in the polls right now to be out and about with the candidates who are losing in the polls right now. And right now, those are of different tickets, or those are on the same tickets. We have some people leading who are Republicans and some people leading who are Democrats. And the winners don't want to hang out with the losers. I mean, to really to put a fine point on it, you know, that will probably change as we get closer and closer to November. It seems like we always see one or two unity rallies just to get sort of like the base of the base out there and get people excited, but not yet. And I think it is extremely notable. And it's a really fair question given what we saw in the 2021 runoffs where 
Ossoff and Warnock had this bromance going on, and Leffler and Purdue were campaigning everywhere. There it was there was all them. Well, uh, Shaney B, let's let's do we have another question? We do. And you know, last week I got punked. I thought we had a, a nice little call from a chimney sweep <laughs> in England, and it turned out to be your daughter. You know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, right? So this caller said his name is Samuel, but I know it's the Cookie Monster. Hello? <laughs> it's Samuel. It's Hello, it's Samuel from LaGrange. <laughs> I, I heard this several podcasts, but my question, my question is for the political podcast. I know there's several podcasts on this phone call. My question is for the political one. And it's a mix, because I know the political people, they also watch sports. So, if you were to say who's going to win the World Series of politics in November, who would you have to win it? Would it be the Democrats or would it be the Republicans? Goodbye, I'll hang up now and await your answer. That's either my brother or every member of my synagogue. <laughs> it's about some, maybe sort of a Brooklyn fishmonger. That's the vibe I'm getting. <laughs> well, Patricia, I'll let you take the, Who's going to win the World Series of Politics this year? I have no idea. Why would anyone predict that? That is a terrible question. Do we have any real questions? <laughs> I love your honesty, Patricia. <laughs> what a I mean, terrible question. I mean, we can't answer it. You cannot answer it. And it's not like that sort of politically correct, oh, you know, I never make predictions. But literally, you cannot predict Georgia right now. It is literally unpredictable. It's not a bad question. It's just a question without an answer. <laughs> It's not a bad question. It's just a terrible question. As you just said. Um, we do encourage your questions, though. And yeah, you know, it, you, Patricia's right. Um, we, we get asked this all the time. Who's going to win in November? Um, those types of questions from our viewers and listeners and readers and all that good stuff. And not only can we not really answer that, even if we had a secret answer, because it's our job to cover this stuff through thick and through thin. But yeah, Patricia's right. I mean, it's a very volatile political climate. And look, we just saw, you know, although we know that um, let's say Kemp is ahead, right, in the polls. We also just saw what happened in Kansas when a surge of voters came out to preserve abortion rights. And so Democrats do have a reason to believe that these polls are all missing a chunk of the electorate. And we heard the same thing from Repu Republicans in 2016 when the polls missed Donald Trump's surge. So we'll see. Now to our second favorite segment of the week, which is who's up and who's down other than Samuel being down for that that quote-unquote terrible question. <laughs> Patricia, let's start with who's down so we can end that on a higher note. Okay, Greg, my loser this week is somebody who you highlighted on In the Jolt this week and kind of busted on Twitter, and it has got to be Bill White, the CEO of the Buckhead City Movement that did not eventually even get off the ground this year. Um, that's not why he's a loser. For reasons I will never understand, Bill White copied you and me in a series of emails when he was absolutely harassing a police official in Atlanta because he said that the police official had canceled a lunch with him. And it was like more and more angrier and angrier. And we were just watching this email exchange. I'm like, what is happening? And, and why are we on it? 
Yeah. And then eventually he was like, if you don't, I know you think you want to be the chief of police, but you better reschedule your lunch with me. I am a business owner. It's all like mean caps. And then then he just started calling him horrible names and... Unfit for a family podcast. I can't even say how the first letter because it was just too dirty. We're like, oh my word. And so then you posted it on Twitter. And then he said, well, his explanation was, well, I'm from Long Island and everybody calls each other that in Long Island. (laughs) We use that. And by the way, as we often, as we noted in the tweets and in the jolt, this was a guy who wanted to create a new Buckhead City solely for the purpose or at least motivated by the purpose of showing law enforcement and first responders more respect that he felt yes. wasn't being given to him. Atlanta. Yes. He's the one calling them bad words and just how you're right. I use the word the rape, harassing. Loser. Yes. Yeah, harassing might be maybe down for word. the week. Down real, for the real week. down. Now my who's down. It's Fulton County relations with Governor Kemp because as we talked about in previous podcasts, it's all been kind of blown to smithereens and we are getting this unique glimpse at just how the behind the scenes negotiations are going through these really fascinating court filings involving Cody Hall, the spokesman for Governor Kemp, who has subpoenaed and testified and apparently got all sorts of questions that he and his the governor's staff were not anticipating and just uh, relations between these two offices that used to be pretty warm, right? They used to be on the same page on a number of issues involving criminal justice have really been uh, undermined, targeted, uh, blown up, exploded, whatever the verb we want to use over this fight over whether or not he should testify before the November election. Patricia, who's your who's up for the week? My who's up for the week is some you have already alluded to this, but Democrats in Georgia are up this week. And that is because I think the national environment for Democrats has gotten quite a bit better over the last several weeks, along with all of the major, major pieces of legislation that President Biden signed after the Democratic House and Senate passed them. They needed those wins. I think that these The results of the election on Tuesday, especially the House race where a Democrat won on a just an an out front pro-abortion rights message was a clear indication, and it backs up some of the polling that we've seen, that that is a very strong motivating factor for Democratic voters. Now, we're not seeing it in the top lines for Democrats here in the state, but we are seeing it as a factor that will be important and it will motivate a certain group of voters. We don't know how many, but I think the results on Tuesday's election give Democrats visibility into the fact that it could make a difference in some races. And we're going to hear that sort of energy, that hope maybe is the better word, this weekend at the Democratic Party convention in Columbus as Democrats really hope that Biden's recent legislative successes and the fact that energy prices are starting to kind of level off can help their reelection chances. My who's up? It's got to be college students and Senator Warnock because he has pushed for this. He made this a very big part of his, he made college debt relief a very major part of his reelection platform and went out on a limb, right? Went out there at a time where we weren't quite sure Biden's popularity. It was more of a risk to go out there and say he's essentially fighting the president. Well, thank you for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can count on new episodes of this podcast to come out every Wednesday, and every Friday, or whenever news breaks. Please be sure to follow us on Apple, on Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And give us a rating. Share it with a friend, too. 
We will see you next time on Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.